Please take your Bibles and turn uh, one last time to the book of Hebrews. To Hebrews chapter 13, uh, verses 17 to 25. Um, you'll find it on page 1009, I think. I don't remember checking if that's true. I assume it's 1009 in the pew chair uh, Bible. Uh, if you would, please stand as we give our attention to the reading of God's Word, if you're able. Hebrews 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me? Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, uh, that you, uh, having inspired these very words and preserved them for us, would you teach us and change us by them for the honor and glory of Christ, we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, I don't suppose, and, and I, guess, I guess this sort of Illustration can only go so far. You can only use it so many times, but it's probably the kind of thing that shows up frequently. I don't suppose that letter writing is really quite so popular anymore as it has been in uh, ages past. When you can text, when you can email, uh, it's much harder to sit down and write a letter that's going to take time to get there, and then you have to wait for a response. Um, and, and yet, even at some level, in emails and texts, we do some of the same kinds of things that we read in this passage. Because it's, it's easy when you get to the end of a letter like this. It's easy to sort of, to think about, to be sort of aware of the writer adding quick closing potentially random, seemingly random thoughts at the end of it all. Uh, I've even noticed this with, with Lucas studying in France. I mean, even on WhatsApp, it's kind of from time to time, it's, hey, tell Jay we said, hey, have fun, eat well, make sure he gets plenty of sleep. You know, it's these kind of closing thoughts that you, that you add at the end of a message that in many ways seem disconnected. And, and that's kind of how the writer 
closes his letter. And it's fairly standard, it's fairly normal to get to the ends of these letters and to find details like verses 22 to 25, particulars about people and places and that sort of thing. But don't think these, these thoughts are as random and as disconnected as they might appear on the face of it. Because notice first, uh, the writer addresses the church's relationship to the writer. Uh, I don't know if you saw, um, if you didn't, if, if you're not a Jeopardy fan, we, we need to get you checked, first of all. But second of all, I don't know if you saw Jeopardy on Wednesday of this past week, or if you're a social media person, you no notice the social media explosion from Final Jeopardy on Wednesday. The you know you know how Jeopardy works? They give you the answer, and then they then they then you have to ask the question, right? Well, the answer of Final Jeopardy on Wednesday was Paul's letter to them is the New Testament epistle with the most Old Testament quotations. The answer, the correct answer was, what is Hebrews? It's actually wrong twice. Because I'm pretty sure, I don't think at least, there are people that still think this, and that's fine. I mean, smart people, people, hold on. People infinitely smarter than I am will still try to argue that Paul is here. I don't think Paul's the author. It's also not the New Testament book with the most Old Testament quotations. It's wrong twice. Of course, Christian Twitter went crazy. Yeah, because we ultimately, we don't know who wrote the letter. Okay, I don't think it's Paul because he actually writes something back in chapter 2 that would contradict some of the things he said in other letters. And so it's not Paul. Okay, well, who wrote it then? And we did this probably sermon one or maybe two, three, four, five, somewhere in there. It kind of, Apollos, Luke, Paul preaching a sermon that Luke recorded, right? I mean, there's, there's several ways that people have addressed that issue. But here's the thing. The audience does know. The audience knows exactly who's writing the letter and he knows them. That's the sort of the, the main point of the whole thing. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, but they do. And notice in verse 22, for example, he calls them brothers. Okay, that includes sisters, right? Brothers, this, the term becomes the, the generic for everybody. And he says, look, I've actually written to you this word of exhortation, though it is brief. In many ways, this is this letter is a sermon, more like a sermon than a letter. So here's here's what we're going to agree on this afternoon. I'm going to uh, time myself reading Hebrews at a reasonable pace, and then we are going to agree that that is the, our definition of a brief sermon. However long it takes me to read Hebrews, we're going to call that brief. There's like you and I don't read 13 chapters and think this is brief. But that's exactly what he's. I, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. But notice. 
it's not really his brevity. It's not the length that he wants them to endure. It's not the length of the letter that he wants them to bear. It's, it's his exhortation. Look, here's the thing. He has not been gentle. I mean, he's, he's been gentle. But he hasn't been only gentle. I mean, literally, there's rebuke. There's direct. You should be teachers by now. And you still need somebody to come along and teach you the ABCs of the gospel. That's kind of not gentle. That, that's the kind of stuff that we hear and kind of feel, you're mean to me. You're being hard on me. But the writer says outright, you should be teachers and you're not. And that's a problem. And so he's been direct. He's exhorted them. He's urged them. But he's also been comforting. He's pointing them to Christ. He's, he's warned them against falling away and, and pointed them back to Jesus to say, look, this is the fulfillment of all you've longed for. Why would you run from him? But at the same time, there's this notion that they will endure. They will bear with his word of exhortation. Why? Because they know each other. Because they know that he cares about them and for them. And he knows that they will bear this exhortation because they love him and they care for each other. There's this implication that they have a great relationship. And he writes for their good. They know who he is, even if we don't. And they know Timothy. Timothy's been released. Timothy's been in prison, apparently, and, and recently released. That the writer hopes that Timothy's going to come to him, and then they will come together to visit these saints. So the fact that Timothy has been released is, is encouraging, blessing, good news to this congregation. We don't even know where he's writing from. He does mention the Italians, right? The Italians send their greetings. Those who come from Italy. I mean, is he, is he, is he in Italy and there's some Italians with him? And so, because he's in Italy and therefore, I don't think that's the case. Is he somewhere else writing to Italy? No, I don't think that's the case either. Whatever the case, there are some Italian believers who send their greetings that must be known to these saints. And so there's this clear relationship between the writer and this congregation. At some level, I hope... So I had a, I had a um, New Testament professor who... Um, you know, they, we always had these assigned readings, um, books, chunks of scripture, whatever um, requirements for our Bible classes, as you would expect. Right. Um, and he his his rule. I remember his rule being eye on every word, not not an eye, but your eye. But you, you put your eye on every word and, and you can affirm that you've read the assigned reading. I hope that you're in the habit of. Of, of reading a little more deeply than that. And of, of asking questions when you come to Scripture. 
That as you're reading through the Bible, you're actually engaged with it and having a conversation with it and say, asking questions like, wait, who said that? And wait, who is he talking to? And what's he talking about? And where is this? And wait, who said this again? And remind me again of, of what that is. I hope that you're sort of in the habit of, of asking questions of the text. But I also hope that you're comfortable not always getting an answer. Because we ask a lot of why questions that we never get answers to. Who's the writer of Hebrews? We don't have the answer. Where's he writing from? Who are the people that he's writing to and where are they? Well, we know they're Jewish Christians in danger of, of falling away, as it were. But we don't get more than that. And at some level, I hope that you ask a lot of questions of the Bible, but I also hope you're okay not always getting an answer back. We don't know who the writer is, but clearly the writer knows them and they know him. In fact, in verse 18, he actually asks for prayer. The writer asks them to pray for us, whoever us are. Now it's a plural people. Now he's got people with him. You ever... Um, you ever think to yourself, um, I should be past blank. I should be beyond blank by now. I shouldn't do this anymore. I should be, I should have outgrown, spiritually speaking, right? This or that. Like, I shouldn't need people to pray for me for this. This is kind of a small thing or this... This is a writer with apostolic authority writing the very inspired word of God saying, I need your prayer. I need to know that you're praying for me. I need you to know that I need prayer. I need you to intercede on my behalf. Now he's asking on account of his conscience. We have a clear conscience. We desire to act honorably in all things. That suggests that he doesn't always. It suggests that they don't always act honorably in all things. That's our desire. Would you pray for us that we would? This is someone with, the, with apostolic authority saying, I'm dependent on Christ. Would you go there for me? Would you intercede on our behalf? In fact, he urges them, verse 19, do this all the more earnestly. I, I don't know if he, I'm earnestly urging you or to pray more earnestly, regardless that we might be restored. More questions. Are they just geographically separated? Or are they relationally separated too? But he longs for their restoration. He longs to be one with them again, whether in physical presence or emotionally and spiritually and relationally too. Something has separated them. He wants to be restored. Pray to that end. Yet another question that we don't get answers to. 
but we're encouraged, we're comforted because it is his desire to see them again, to be united with them and to show his love for them. We see the church's relationship with the writer. We also see the church's relationship with her shepherds. Notice verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. Every local congregation, we did this in our new members class a week ago. Every local congregation has elders, plural. A plurality of of elders. Uh, That's the pattern in Scripture. And in verse 17, we have these two commands uh, in terms of the church's relationship with their shepherds, with her shepherds. The first is to obey. Now that has to do with teaching. The, The leader's job is to teach to proclaim God's word. And the command here is obey what he says. Follow the commands of your leaders. Plural, I said he. It should have been they. They say obey your leaders. Follow their instruction as they open to you and teach you the word of God. It's the leader's job to to instruct God's people according to God's word. Which also means that your leaders shouldn't be instructing you by their standards or by some other standard, by some other man-made authority. There's a command here, obey your leaders. The implication, of course, as long as they're teaching you God's word. But then you're also called to submit to them, to follow them. That's a obey is relation to what they're teaching. Submit is relation to their office and their position, their role as leaders in the local church. So the reality is local congregation are choosing those leaders. The local congregation is choosing those who would be elders, shepherds over their congregation over that flock and so having chosen them to be from among the congregation to be leaders then you should submit to them you should follow them why would you sort of choose them select them to be your elders to be your leaders and then decide well but i'm not going to do what they say yeah y'all should be elders y'all should be leaders but i'm just going to go over here and do my own thing For that matter, notice verse 17. It actually says that let them do this with joy. The suggestion there is that it's actually the obedience and the submission of the congregation that gives joy to the elders, that gives joy to the local church leaders. You want leaders who delight in their role. You want leaders who delight in in bringing God's word to you. You want leaders who delight in their position as as elders, as under shepherds. Here, their joy depends on the congregation's obedience and submission. But notice, this relationship isn't one way. 
The relationship actually works both ways. It's not simply congregation, obey and submit to your leaders. But then there's a relationship that flows back the other direction too. What's the leader's job? It isn't his own glory. It isn't to say, look at how many followers I've got. It isn't to make himself look great or to feel good about himself. No, the leader's job is to keep watch over their souls. The function, the responsibility of the local church elders, leaders, under shepherds is to actually care for the people. So there's this picture here that true leaders in the church, the kinds of leaders that you should choose to be elders in the local church are those who clearly want your spiritual nourishment, your safety, your growth, your care. Incidentally, there's a there's an implic again because this came up in the uh, new members class last week. Uh, there's an implication. It's not exactly an application, but there's an implication from verse 17, uh, and it's this: um, There's no verse in the Bible that says, "Thou shalt have church membership." There's no verse that says, "Thou shalt keep a roll of of actual members in the local church." You realize this, right? And yet the overwhelming pattern of Scripture in so many places from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation is this picture of a, of a particular, specific relationship. Notice the command. Obey, submit. Not to leaders, just leaders. Your leaders. That's... That's an exclusivity. That's a, a relationship of, of particular and specific and exclusion. And for that matter, the leaders care for your souls. Again, it's a, a relationship of, of exclusivity and particular uh, particularity, particularness, specificity in this relationship. And there are dozens of of verses, of passages like this that sort of make the connection between leaders, elders, and the local church that suggest if you're supposed to know who you're caring for, then there should be some list or role or membership um, role somewhere along the way. Just a, an implication of Verse 17, we actually don't need a verse that says thou shalt have church membership because it's the pattern. It's the picture. It's illustrated everywhere throughout Scripture. The church's relationship with uh, the writer, the church's relationship with her shepherds or her under shepherds. But see, here's the deal. If we can just be honest for a second your leaders they're sinners too they need a shepherd for that matter they don't love us as much as they should they struggle to love themselves they they don't 
care for the flock the way they're supposed to care for the flock because your leaders are sinners too. And that's why the writer then says, hold on a second. You should obey and submit to your leaders. However, he then points us to the church's relationship with the chief shepherd in verses 20 and 21. I don't know if you noticed, maybe you noticed as I was reading, maybe you knew this already, maybe you were already familiar with this. But verses 20 and 21 is the, uh, that's the benediction that I typically use on communion Sunday. We've just celebrated communion, Lord's Supper, blood of the covenant. And so I use the same sort of language in that benediction. That's my normal first Sunday benediction because we've celebrated the Lord's Supper together. Have you ever noticed that sometimes I can't, I can't say it right? Like there's a, there's, there's some pattern and, and clauses and dependence that there's one phrase in particular. I don't know whether it goes before or after. And I, I never say it the same way two times in a row, I'm pretty sure. It's that phrase, by the blood of the eternal covenant. I don't, does it look backwards? Does it look forward? There's, there's some cumbersomeness. Which makes you think maybe Paul did write the Hebrews. But there's some cumbersomeness, is that a word? That's a word. Cumbersomeness to these two verses. But notice what's clear. The word benediction, it's just Latin for good word. Eulogy is Greek, good word. So it's the same word, the exact same sort of background. And so the writer launches into pronouncing or praying um, a good word for, from God on the congregation. May the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good. This has become the pattern of, of worship today to end with a benediction to end because so many new testament letters end with a good word from god for and on and to the people and in some ways it makes sense he's literally just asked pray for us verse 18 and now he gets to let the congregation hear him pray for them they get to hear him and how he <laughs> prays for them in verses 20 and 21. And notice where the writer kind of points their attention. First, that Christ is the great shepherd of the sheep. Christ cares for our souls better than any earthly human leader ever could. For that matter, Christ knows you better than any earthly leader ever could and yet still loves you more than any earthly leader ever could. He's, he's suffered and bled and died. He's lived and, and, and died and, and rose again for us to redeem us, to build the church, to establish his, uh, his bride here on earth. We have under shepherds who 
care for our souls, but not like Christ does. But that's not all. He didn't stay dead. He then reminds them that that great shepherd who was not just the lamb who bled and suffered and died for you, he's defeated death itself. He has risen again. And because of that, he, God can be trusted to equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Do you remember the, you remember the audience of the letter, right? I mean, you know who he's writing to. They're actually a lot like us, right? They've come to faith in Christ, and yet the world they live in says, this is stupid. This is a complete waste. It doesn't make sense. It's, you're not keeping up with the times. You're not, um, uh, it's, it, it's not logical. It's not, right? I mean, these are Jewish Christians who have come to saving faith in Christ and who are in danger of going back to Judaism. They're, going, they're, they're in danger of going back to the, the trappings of, of old covenant worship and old covenant life. And at some level, the writer says, look, you, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. Why would you go back to the, the old and, and reject the, the greater, the, the better, the fulfillment of all that the, the old anticipated? They're facing persecution from, from family who, how dare you forsake the family religion? Uh, how dare you turn and follow Christ when Abraham, I mean, this was good enough for Abraham. It was good enough for David. Why can't it be good enough for you? They face persecution from the culture around them because in the mid-60s, I don't, I don't think that yet, Nero is burning Christians to light his parties, but it's close. It's coming. They're not far from that. We live in the same kind of world. You trust in Jesus? Like that's so, we've so grown beyond that. That doesn't, that doesn't even make sense. That doesn't, it's not logical. It's a, a waste of your time. And so, you struggle, maybe you don't admit it, but there are times when you think, I probably ought to make sure I really believe this is true. Because if I really am wasting my time, I don't want to waste my time any longer. And there's that, that thought that goes through your mind that says, all right, let me, let me be reminded all over again that, that I'm not wasting my time. How will they press on? How will you press on? How will you continue to trust in Christ? How will you be encouraged in the face of so much doubt and persecution, how can you have the confidence to trust in God's promise, promises if everyone else around you says you're crazy? Well, the picture here is we need Jesus for that. He's the one who cares for your soul. He's the one who shed his blood, the blood of the eternal covenant. He's the one who has served as both lamb and priest, as sacrifice and sacrificer on your behalf. 
But because God has raised him from the dead, God can be trusted to equip you with everything good that you that he you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. The picture is that our growth, our sanctification, our pressing on in the faith, that's all a work of God's grace. You need Christ for that. You need the spirit at work. You need those ordinary means of grace, words, sacraments, prayer. You need fellowship with other believers. Just think about all the um, all the promises of ages past. All those, all those promises that said, um, this will fix humanity, right? We live, we live in a, a country that says that exists because monarch bad, we need democracy. Um, there was a time, if you back up a little further, uh, religion bad. What we need is science. What we need is the enlightenment. What we need is logic. What we need is, is human reason. Now we're in the science bad because now I want to do things that science won't let me. And so I have to throw that off for some form of rugged individualism. You know what? What, what people need is more money or what people need is more education. With these things that, that get promised to us all the time that say, well, if we just have blank, then everything will be fixed. And at some level, you feel like Mr. Incredible. I just want the world to stay saved, you know? See, the problem isn't out there. None of these things can solve the problem. None of these things can fix the fear because the problem isn't out there. The problem is us. The problem is you and me. The problem is in here. And we need a lamb whose blood has been shed provided to us by an eternal covenant who paid for our sin, our guilt, our shame. We need the great shepherd who will shepherd our hearts and minds towards truth and godliness. And at the end of it all, what will you say? How will you respond? Because notice verse 21. The writer does a quick head fake. He plants his left foot and cuts hard right on you all of a sudden. In the middle of a benediction, in the middle of praying for God's blessing on the people, he then turns her into a doxology. Doxology is, is a word of praise. He goes from, may God bless you, oh, by the way, even that is to the praise of Christ. Even your blessing is all to the praise and glory and honor of Christ. This whole letter is about how Jesus is greater, is better than all the old covenant trappings. And it ends with how Christ is greater than everything else also. That Christ alone, to him be glory forever and ever. And for this work of blessing in our lives, Christ is to be glorified, not us. Even our blessings 
turn into praise for Christ. Because we know that our salvation from beginning to end is all of His grace. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we pray that you would use this, your word, and this book as we come to the end of it uh, to remind us that Christ is all in all, that Christ is worthy, that Christ is the fulfillment of all that the old covenant and covenant anticipates. And that our salvation is all because of the work of Christ and applied by you. And there's no place anywhere along the timeline that we can grab for our own credit. And so we pray that we would be people who even when we go out with your blessing, we would recognize that as to your praise, as evidence of your grace. And we would throw that, that praise right back to you where it belongs. Would you be with us? Would you equip us to serve and follow you and to love Christ and to advance the kingdom, to gather the saints, to perfect your people? And would you grow in us a longing for the world to come? We ask all of this in the name of Christ our great shepherd. Amen.